And the VR version, they found that two minutes of VR gameplay of this game, this game that was all about spatial navigation, go from A to B to Z, eight, two minutes of gameplay in VR generated over five hours worth of lab research for the study of Alzheimer's. And they came up with over 2,000 years of research that they can only be able to digest with the help of machine learning. And so similarly, we are right now looking to build up a machine learning and data science team where we are going to create digital health markers for the early detection of cognitive illnesses and impairments based on mining the big data of VR gameplay patterns across our library of games. Good morning, everyone. This is the Healthy Idea Podcast by Iman and Nico. I'm Iman. And I'm Nico. And on our podcast, we sit down with founders on how they're using new technologies to solve critical health issues that face our society today. We learn more about their journeys into entrepreneurship and how they started their company. We hope to shed light on innovations in health and encourage you to think on the art of what's possible with technology today. Hi, everyone. Welcome back to the Healthy Idea Podcast with Iman and Nico. Today, we have Amir. He is the CEO and founder of Virtualeap, which is a VR company that's helping making waves in a variety of industries, but especially in digital health. Amir, it's great to have you on. How are you today? Thank you for having me. I am super happy to be on this podcast with you. Awesome. Amazing. Yeah, we're so happy to have you on. And I guess just to kick it off, do you mind just talking a bit about yourself and a bit about what you do at Virtualeap? Yeah, sure. I'm um, I'm originally a Vancouverite who spent quite a bit of time in the Middle East. And then about five years ago, when I relocated to Europe, I um, made that into my the chapter of getting into VR. I, I covered the space as well as AR and emerging tech for, for VentureBeat and, and TechCrunch. And around that time, I was doing, um, along with my co-founder and CTO, Hossein Jalali, we um, ran um, a couple of these global WebXR hackathons. And um, during that time, we kind of uh, discovered a really interesting area of the VR sector that we thought was underserved or under, you know, leveraged in terms of the opportunities that were there. And that led us into uh, a healthcare and educational VR startup called Virtualeap. What we do is we create, we've created a VR brain training app that offers a, a library of games, mini games that are designed based on cognitive science in order to test and train your cognitive abilities and serve as a diagnostic tool on the one hand to tell you where you're good at, what you're bad at, and maybe games can help you make yourself better and more whole wholesome as an individual. But we're also very much um, niche focused as well for the kind of special groups, special demographics, like people who are elderly and um, susceptible to cognitive disease, like Alzheimer's or dementia or Parkinson's or cognitive impairments. And so we're, we're doing a lot of studies coming up where we work with research partners specifically for those use cases. But in, in general, we're like the next generation of a Lumosity or a Peak. Amazing. Yeah, I came across you guys actually through your amazing activity on LinkedIn about kind of cognitive science, how it's affecting things like Alzheimer's and how you can improve people's ability just for improves people's health in kind of the, the neuroscience space or neurological diseases. Um, so that's that's just absolutely epic to hear. One thing just to add on that is a lot of great strategists, if you kind of like read history, a lot of them were great, like great, um, I don't know what the word is, game players. <laughs> like uh, Reed Hoffman has been kind of notorious for being a great Catan player and playing video games growing up and mm. he's one of the like best strategists in Silicon Valley so there's a lot of connection between strategy and problem solving and actually like gaming so that's awesome that you guys kind of picked up on that well it's um it's been this trend in the last 10 years or so where you've had this this community of neuroscientists who have developed these exercises based on these really famous now or well well known tests like the Stroop test and then you take this Stroop test which was designed by cognitive scientists for the real world to help for rehabilitation of people's mental faculties or mental health, and they were left in the real world. And then when smartphones became really, really popular, you saw companies like Lumosity or Lumo Labs and Peak and Elevate and Brain HQ. They all got so massively popular because they made those games or those exercises, they gamified them into a closed loop game that would make it accessible to anyone with a smartphone or tablet. But then during all that time, they were, of course, releasing studies to show how playing these games regularly can actually have a 
cognitive improvement in X, Y, and Z specifically in a domain. Like memory games might make you better in those memory domains. But there's been this kind of two camps on whether this is actually a beneficial thing to do into your routine or if it's just kind of like fun because the evidence isn't conclusive yet. And so that's really at the heart of what our company is all about. It's that we believe that VR is the first digital format to trigger the autonomic nervous system, the vestibular balance system, our proprioception into believing the experience is real, which is kind of evolutionary speaking, I think more aligned with how we are designed to actually learn, um, not just in one way, but multiple ways. It's not just when you're in VR and you're playing these games, your body thinks it's real and therefore you're engaging multiple cognitive, behavioral, experiential, and, and emotional circuits all in parallel. And I think that's what's always been missing with the screen-based brain training apps. That's so interesting. You guys are kind of like tapping into our body's innate ability to, I guess, sense things as more real, um, which I guess enhances our brain activity, which is awesome. Actually, that's a great segue to my next question is kind of what is the core product that you offer and who are these products normally targeted to? So the app in and of itself, Enhance, it's called um, Enhance VR Brain Training. This app is in every way designed for consumer market. It's available right now in beta on SideQuest for the Rift on the Oculus Store and for the HTC Vive Focus Plus. And, and in about a few weeks, we'll be releasing the full version. Uh, it's a huge milestone for us with the new UX and really cool reporting features. But that is designed for the consumer market in every shape and form. And yet we are a library of games and a library of games that right now counts around seven games. So we're not a full consumer product until we hit like 15, at least 20. By the end of the year, we'll hit around 20 games. And at that time, that's what we want to be. We have a, you know, a large library of games that means that if you come in once a day or as frequently as a few days a week or, or whatever, so that you can track your progress, we don't want you to overlap on those games too much because that's, that's not how we're designed to be. Our games aren't supposed to be like making you play for long session lengths. We want you in and out 10 to 15 minutes max and get back into the real world. It's not at all a long form v- consumer experience. And so it is designed for consumer. It won't be really ready for consumer at this full force until the end of the year when our library is you know, sufficiently big enough. And yet, even on top of that, I personally, as someone who did cover the VR sector for quite a while, I'm not really interested in purely putting all my eggs in the consumer market, which I think is still resting on shifting sands to some extent. And I think while we develop and make ourselves available as a consumer product that will just keep on evolving and evolving, and by 2021 will certainly be, um, I think, something that will be very, very useful for direct downloads on these consumer app stores, we've also created a web application that we call the Data Dash. This is a web application that is offering organizations the ability to manage and monitor the cognitive performance of their users and slice and dice that data with third-party data tools, all sorts of integrations. And it's specifically designed for research institutes, hospitals, clinics, and senior living communities. Because again, one of our biggest uh, focuses is the aging population. But that said, we're also in talks with sporting leagues for uh, being able to manage uh, traumatic brain injury. We're in touch with even the space agencies right now about um, there's a huge impetus to drive innovation for the how to maintain cognitive health in astronauts and deep space flights to Mars. So we do try to keep it use case agnostic, but investors get really annoyed. Maybe I guess I can't hyper focus in this situation, but you know, what do you do? You can't close your door to the many people, many use cases that want you, you know, we were even in touch with the Veteran Affairs Medical Health Center in San Francisco, and they're all about how addiction causes early onset of cognitive illnesses and impairments. Should we say no to working with them because our focus is the elderly? Um, no. Yeah. So, yeah. So we've designed everything to be open. Wow. So it's definitely, I guess it's a good problem to have kind of the overload of demand. I'm curious, where does the demand come from? Is it, do people kind of hear about your product and are you know excited to think, hey, we would love a customized solution for this problem and we think VR can attack it. Yeah. How, where do these ideas come from? Everything from space to, to working with the veteran affairs. Yeah. Like, I guess there's no gold standard in how you you can assess your cognitive health or your cognitive Mm -hmm. abilities yet. There's been this kind of wall we've been hitting. And so researchers, and if you look at, I mean, we have a consultant that works with us and he gives me a huge lists of all these studies and all these studies on all these different applications of uh, medical studies for proving X, Y, and Z, how this drug uh, you know affects cognitive ability or how this particular type of repertoire or routine can maybe improve this person who's got like a certain degree uh, and type of dementia. All of these studies are very different, but they all have some sort of battery of tests that they would use to 
to assess before, during, and after what the effect of that study is on the person's cognitive abilities. Like this can even be studies on psilocybin and mushrooms and and those are affecting. They're all using a battery of tests that are about cognitive abilities. And so if you consider from pen and paper methodologies that we used to use, maybe a lot of people still use them. It maybe takes 45 minutes or three hours to evaluate yourself in terms of your cognitive abilities, or you suddenly have technologies like smartphones that allow you to do instead of 45 minutes, maybe way less or maybe way more effective because you're using technology. But now VR allows you to, for the first time, do a diagnostic on your mental fitness and physical fitness in parallel and, you know, in synchrony in a way that is much more intimate. It reminds me of like my initial training right out of university was as a market researcher, quantitative studies. And we always knew that when you ask questions in a quantitative survey and then you observe the person actually in the real live environment, there's often contradiction. Usually we don't really know attitudinally um, what we are and what we do. Our physicality actually says it. It's like that Kung Fu you know, saying, you only know a person until you fight them. It's like VR allows the physical body to really concur and to be intimate and experience that gives you really accurate assessments of where, where you are and what you are and, and any improvements depending on what you're doing. And so I think a lot of industries have always been wanting a battery of tests that gives a psychological assessment that is as effective um, as possible. And VR is simply, you know, when it comes to educational use cases and healthcare uses like brain training and brain assessment, it is a critical use case for this reason. I don't believe there's any other industries where VR actually serves as a critical use case that game changes the whole landscape. No, you're, you're absolutely right. I guess the only other area where I've seen VR is kind of creating like branding or immersive experiences around retail. But again, I feel like that's tapping into a point of, again, neuroscience, where we're looking at what are the triggers to our emotional needs when it comes to shopping. And I find that very much correlated. But uh, yeah, that's amazing. I'm so happy for the use cases. I think it's phenomenal. I think there is definitely added value there. I'm curious on how you're integrating your applications in hardware. Do you guys choose specific sets or are you building out your own kind of hardware alongside your app? So we're actually designed for, you know, six off headsets, you know, the Quest, Rift, anything, you know, we're, we're even for the, the Index because we'll be launching on Steam for the next release. But all, we, we really cater for the standalone headsets and that generation. Anything 3DOF, anything Oculus Go is like hearing your nails scratching against chalkboards. I really want the industry to move away from 3DOF devices, but we have nothing Interesting. special. I'm really, I'm really hardcore about that opinion. I really think 3DOF is, it's just great that we had it and it's great that, you know, Walmart has 17,000 of them, but now it's just like, let's move on. I'm really hoping that we'll make these uh, headsets redundant because for instance, for us and our games and our games based on cognitive science and the data integrity of what we're doing here, you need to have six degrees of freedom. You need to be able to lean and the data needs to, the interactive experience needs to actually take that into account. You know, rotational based glorified 360 videos are not VR to me and they're certainly not, they don't help us in terms of our long-term vision of what we're trying to do here. So it has to be a six degree freedom headset. We don't need anything specialty. We're actually trying to work with either EEG uh, partners that can integrate with the experience on the back end. We're already integrating EEG and uh, smartwatches and all sorts of biometric kind of data flows we can put into play. We're also in talks with, you know, we're looking into companies like Neurobull and Lucid Lab, I think pronouncing it right, with their Lucid Link that allows, mm-hmm. I think, the Quest and other standalones to just integrate very seamlessly. We're not trying to become experts in any of those areas. And I certainly don't want to be hardware oriented at all, but mm-hmm. hopefully we can work with them and integrate it into the backend web app and just flow it all together for the benefit of research and for the benefit of maximizing the meaningful results people are getting with our games. Gotcha. Iman, do you mind if I jump in real quick? No, no, go for it. So Amir, can you, for our audience at home who may not, and myself included, who may not have as much experience with VR, what is the difference between three degrees of freedom and six degrees of freedom with respect to like a VR headset? I'm really sorry. I guess I drink the Kool-Aid so often. (laughs) (laughs) That's okay. Yeah. When people know about VR, I think for the last uh, five years or so, most of them may have encountered a 3DOF degree, headset, which basically is it's rotational. You put on this headset and it. the best way to describe it is the content doesn't depend on your body movement. Um, Mm. If your body moves in a 3DOF device, it doesn't matter. The content doesn't know you're moving. And and likewise, the content can be moving and your body's not moving. And that causes the typical situation of nausea and all those silly kind of unfortunate side effects of a lot of VR experiences and VR content because it was not, you do not move an experience without the body physically 
we having some type of interaction with that? And so the best experiences in VR for sure are the ones that even have specialized hardware that is in sync with the experience that you're seeing with when you're wearing a VR headset. So if you are on a roller coaster and it's moving around like crazy, then you're not just sitting idly in a and your body's not even feeling the impact tactically and so on. The best VR experiences are where you actually can feel it and your body's engaged. Because when you right. go, when you step into a three-off experience, even so, the visual sense believes that you are on top of Mount Everest, right? But a lot of the other senses need to also be engaged in subtle ways, ideally. Mm-hmm. And the more you have that overall sensory inclusion, the more that experience, if it's educational or healthcare-based, uh, the more impactful it will be in that setting. Six degrees of freedom devices allow you to lean. And when you lean, the content is you in that 3D rendered environment. It's like, it's a real space. It's basically imitating reality that much more in a three degrees of freedom experience. It's like you're in a 360 video and you're just looking around, but you can't move forward. You can't move back. You can't move up. You know, it doesn't know that you're leaning down, crutching down. That was a midware, you know, it was a middleware kind of, what is it? Like a transient form of, of VR hardware that we had to go through, but it's certainly not true VR. And it's time that we don't create content for uh, 3DOS devices like the Oculus Go. Gotcha. Okay, that yeah. makes a lot of sense to me. It's really crazy, uh, to be honest. Yeah, sorry, Iman, because, because you know a lot of people are still using this for VR healthcare or experiences and stuff. And these are big companies. And I'm really frustrated because that's not, you know, and with during the coronavirus epidemic that we're going through right now, VR healthcare and VR rem- uh, telehealth and remote education, there's been a huge acceleration in demand for these things, right? For obvious reasons. And yet what we're doing is a lot of these companies I've been noticing are still offering content in three degrees of freedom mode, which is just, so, you know, it's like, why are we using 1980 technology from my point of view? Do you feel like it's perhaps a lack of expertise with like current technology and people are just entering VR because they think it sounds innovative and cool? I would blame the founders in so far as they're trying to make things so commercially viable for their company because they're feeling mm-hmm. so much pressure with their investors. Mm-hmm. VR is a deep tech sector. If you have the bandwidth and the leeway, you can really do things right in the right way. For example, if you build things for 3DOF devices, the benefit is that you, more people will be able to purchase them because they're cheaper. So they're more accessible. But it's like like a hundred dollars difference. And the experience between them is so phenomenally huge. I guess I'm more of a... over quantity. (laughs) No, but but at the same time, I suffer way more than a lot of companies with invest, you know, my relationships with investors. I'm not very popular. I'm Mm -hmm. not very successful in terms of raising big amounts. So don't Mm -hmm. listen to me. If you want to do the VC route and be very successful and getting too many gray hairs in the process. Don't do what mm-hmm. I'm doing. Do what they're doing. Do it 3DOF. But ultimately the patience and the science and the real use cases and the social impact, they're so dwarfed because we're focusing on those commercially viable, easier routes. Whereas mm-hmm. if we just had more leeway and more bandwidth to really focus on the experience and the content and using the right hardware that is available to us right now, like the 6DOF degree headsets, like the Oculus Quest, like the Pico Neo 2, um, like the HTC Vive Focus Plus, all of these, I think the human impact it should be you know what we should be prioritizing very cool and i actually agree with you i think that if there is technology that disintermediates the kind of the long the worsening impacts that can come with the three off to the human health or to the human body and you can do it in a six in an area where there's six degrees of freedom like i think why not but incentives don't always align <laughs> that's um, right i have a question actually that just came out of this conversation about coronavirus and vr health i've heard kind of like very opposing uh, things one that it's been hard to actually be in the commercial space because of kind of lack of touch with VR headsets. There's a physical object. I'm curious, like you mentioned that there was lots of demand though. How has it been with like the demand and coronavirus implications? So you have companies in the US uh, like Applied VR, Striver, XR Health, Mind VR, Behavior. I don't know why I'm saying them so with great memory, Uh, maybe because they're always (laughs) top of mind. And these are the platforms that we would like to integrate our solution into their platforms because they're healthcare oriented platforms that have hundreds and hundreds of hospitals already as clients, Okay, you know, as customers. So these these platforms typically in most situations, they started out as a VR startup that was catering to using VR experiences to to serve as an alternative to opioid treatments for for chronic pain. Mm -hmm. It's been like probably one of the best, most famous at least use cases where the FDA even had their public workshop on March 6th, where they really just brought in all these experts of VR, particularly because they saw that for some reason, when you're 
you're in VR experiences, you can dampen the pain receptors significantly. I mean, we don't really understand the total reasoning of why yet. There needs to be a lot of research, but you know, it, it might be a thing of when you distract the visual sense in such a way that it thinks it's in another reality, the other senses, including your pain receptors, start to dampen because there's like a split between the you know dimension of, the, of what you're perceiving. I don't know. But um, these companies all did really well during the last few, four years or so. You know, they've been, some of them like Applied VR have already gone through phase one trials and stuff for their solutions. And then they got popular. They created a platform. They have all these hospitals. And so now they need content to provide hospitals with all sorts of healthcare solutions. And so what I've noticed specifically with our relationships with these types of companies is they're trending very well right now. They're getting a lot more inbound requests from hospitals, from caregivers, from researchers studying uh, technologies and, and medications and so on for these things. Ultimately, the coronavirus situation is all about isolation. And so you do notice also a lot of trending uh, VR experiences that are about fitness. People mm-hmm. are on Facebook just like posting tons of videos of themselves, their families playing all these VR fitness experiences like Box VR, and then, then that new Supernatural app that's launched by Within the studio uh, in partnership with Oculus. Um, mm-hmm. So you see telehealth and how can I give my patient or how can I myself be able to access all of these transcended experiences through this digital format for my health, for my well-being. It's been trending very hard. I mean, the Oculus Quest has been sold out for months and months and months, partly out of their fault, I think, for mismanaging supply in the beginning. But when coronavirus hit, which they couldn't have expected, that caused a lot of production shortfalls. And I do see that starting to be fixed right now, but there was a huge opportunity that was lost during the past four months because there were actually not enough headsets and it was constantly, constantly out of stock. Like yesterday, I was begging people to get me an Oculus Quest. I was going to trade them like, I don't know, ivory or gold or something. Just give me an Oculus <laughs> Quest because there's nowhere. And then I finally saw it on the website. It's like, it's available. I purchase it, but not, wait three weeks. It's still like really horrible in terms of getting your hands on one. That's a big opportunity loss. But without a shadow of a doubt, there is a huge trend of even the FCC uh, launched a special grant. I think it's 200 million. It was just a month ago. 200 million for institutes to use that money to upgrade their capability for telehealth solutions across the board, get mm-hmm. any technology. So it's huge, the demand right now. Amazing. I would have never known. I think I've just been so far removed personally from VR. I would love to explore it more. And I feel like I think after this conversation, I'll most likely be exploring it a lot more. Yeah. But I'll pass it off to Nico. Awesome. Thanks, Aman. So I was wondering with respect to like with these partnerships and I know mostly it's consumer, but like as you start working more and more with maybe some enterprises, like what do you see as like virtual leaps monetization strategy moving forward? So the consumer stores where you could download it directly yourself, that will be initially a paid download. And then once we have a big enough number of games, it'll move into a, a freemium subscription model, typical subscription model where you would you could download for free and you, you can play three random games, for example, uh, per session per day. Anybody, if you want to have access to the extended library and an additional reports, like for example, a new report that we're introducing next month is like, you'll know because you report every day when you log in, how many hours you slept and what your mood was that you'll be able to do um, an overlay and see how your cognitive abilities are affected by the quality of your sleep and your moods. Does your memory go up or down? All these kind of things. But we can start to have some of these more advanced features only accessible through that paywall of, of subscribing. And that will be the consumer model, which is pretty typical in the app stores. Mm-hmm. But but for that web app, for the data dashboard, and to offer that to uh, organizations, that would be based on a user licensing model. So for example, if you want to manage and monitor up to 20 of your users or your community, then we would charge you, for example, 200 or 300 a month. And if you wanted 500 users for a more larger enterprise or a bigger network of, of users, then it would be much higher. <laughs> but it's a user licensing mm-hmm. model, typical SaaS revenue kind of pricing strategy there. Gotcha. Now that makes a ton of sense to me. And you had mentioned it earlier when it comes about like finding standards for measuring cognition just in general or, or people always want to measure whether or not like there are things their medication are actually having an impact on people so like do you see virtually moving forward maybe sometime in the future like running either medical or like a clinical trial to actually measure your platform with cognition or whether or not it's you know measuring the correct things sure it's actually top of mind right now it's just you know we have on the one hand the biggest thing is build up that game library and then on the mm-hmm. Uh, and on the other hand, it's work with, we have eight research partners right now um, across 
North America and Europe. These include the Pacific Brain Health Center in California, White Plains Hospital in New York, um, also New York Rockefeller University Hospital. Um, in Europe, we have a few that we're working with, including the National Innovation Center for Aging at Newcastle University. And so these partnerships in parallel to developing the games are all about working with them to apply for grants or to secure the funding so that we can do initially um, a first wave of feasibility studies starting this summer and some in fall. And then that would graduate to you know phase one clinical trials and then phase two and, and so on. So that is already started. It's always been top of mind. And we just started uh, working with um, the Center for Brain Health at the University of Texas even to apply for that kind of deep space grant. So you know mm-hmm. each of our partners are to start these individual tracks in, in human trials to validate the efficacy of our solution so that we can see what are the impacts. Because brain training more or less is still kind of controversial because you know screen-based apps simply just do not engage the body thoroughly and intimately enough for conclusive kind of like evidence yet that, that it really works at these heightened levels. But there's plenty of evidence that they do work. It's just a lot of research and a lot of studies and a lot of trials that need to intersync and work together. But we're doing that. It's happening. The other thing that is really, really integral to our big vision is that I wrote an article on Venture Beat back in September 2019, and it was about the elderly and how they're actually serving as, as very early adopters of VR, which is probably surprising to a lot of people. But one of the aspects of, this, of the article was um, I wrote about the, the huge big data opportunity that's unfolding with volumetric data sets from these games. The UK Alzheimer's Association and Deutsche Telekom that sponsored this study, they created this game called Sea Hero Quest, and it was available in mobile version and VR version. And the VR version, they found that two minutes of VR gameplay of this game, this game that was all about spatial navigation, go from A to B to Z, it, two minutes of gameplay in VR generated over five hours worth of lab research for the study of Alzheimer's. And they came up with over 2,000 years of research that they can only be able to digest with the help of machine learning. And so similarly, we are right now looking to build up a machine learning and data science team where we are going to create digital health markers for the early detection of cognitive illnesses and impairments based on mining the big data of VR gameplay patterns across our library of games, you know, across these cognitive domains that we generalize our games towards, like memory games and flexibility games, motor skill games, and so on. So these digital biomarkers are all about being able to inform someone as early as possible based on their physical and cognitive and in parallel kind of way of their playing the games. And then that's usually in- indicative of kind of red flags here and there. In fact, you can actually detect a cognitive illness up to 20 years before it ever onsets. So it's a huge thing. I think it's kind of like, uh, it's very central to our long-term mission that we're doing. We're creating all of the building blocks to make that available. Mm-hmm. No, that's fantastic. So there's a lot to digest there. So I'll start with the most recent things you've discussed and then work backwards because I'm super curious. So with respect to the, um, like things like Alzheimer's, because I know I've, so with respect to the issues around like Alzheimer's and the ability to actually predict it very early on, just curious, are there, do patients see better outcomes the earlier intervention happens with respect to Alzheimer's? It depends on the type of Alzheimer's. That That's the answer gotcha. I get when I ask the same question. Because actually it's a much more nuanced uh, situation than, than maybe laymen like myself would would know. And so gotcha. is it a vascular type? Is, you know, there's so but, many. But there is, for, for certain types, there is some benefit. Absolutely. Absolutely. Okay. Because what they do is the earlier you know, the earlier you can intervene with understanding what is that person's general routine in their life. How is their diet? How is their physical exercise? How The most vindicated kind of things that we all know, and it's very true, that is good for your cognitive health is, and your mental health is, certain things like being social to a certain extent, you know, having good social life, having a life that's worthwhile, that's full of fresh air and exercise and nutrition and that kind of stuff, right? And you want to be able to, if you can detect something early, you can be able to see what is that lifestyle? Can we improve it? Because if you can improve it, what happens is you have this curve, this curve of detail deterioration that will eventually happen to us all in some way or another, but you can extend the longevity of our quality of life by Mm -hmm. making our habits as healthy and positive as possible. And so I think early intervention is kind of anecdotal to some extent. If the the earlier you know, the more you can focus on proving your lifestyle, right? Mm -hmm. But um, I'm not going to say I know um, the more intensive and the more medical kind of interventions that I'm sure are many and multifold. Mm -hmm. Of course. No, that's 
totally fair. And then talking about these partnerships, so you know, you said that you had seven or eight partnerships kind of across the world. Are they all inherently, and I know you mentioned a little bit, like one's about the space one, like are they all inherently about like measuring cognition or is it kind of like we said, where one just like neurodegeneration where for astronauts or Alzheimer's, are they different? Are some of them the same? What do those partnerships look like with respect to like use cases? The, the one in Barcelona, I just can't pronounce it properly. So I'm not going to try right now and butcher it. But the one in Barcelona that we're partnered with alongside the one in New York, White Plains Hospital, they're interested in diabetes. Okay. Mm-hmm. Diabetes is a, something that causes early onset of cognitive deterioration and disease. Just like the VA medical center is interested in addiction and how addiction causes an early onset, right? Yeah. So the two of these institutes that we're working with are on the track of finding out what helps and doesn't help or and to what degree does it help or doesn't help these solutions. And they need a battery of tests and they need uh, the most effective sort of tool that they can use to gauge objectively the cognitive state of an individual or a sample of group. So some of them are working on the basis of how can we improve and address diabetes. Another one is addiction. Another one is mental health. Another one is mental impairments or, or disorders like schizophrenia. So they're mm-hmm. all, none of them per se are using it for validating the tool in and of itself just for its own sake. They're all hinging on some kind of lifestyle condition or situation that is very prevalent in our society to some extent. And can we use technology as it intersects with neuroscience and AI and VR? Can this like triple combo intersection of technologies cause that sort of like wow phenomenon that allows us to address these huge social impact concerns? No, that makes total sense to me. It just kind of like you said, right? It's like, is do you say no? It's it's hard to say no to these people when there's so much to be explored within like the VR cognitive space. So right. kind of this multi-pronged approach, um, which right. is really exciting. That's really cool. So, um, and you've you've discussed this um, in part, but I have this written down because I know on when I was looking you guys up on Crunchbase, it said like Virtue Leap's ultimate goal was to help identify early signs of Alzheimer's and other neurological diseases. Yeah. So what do you feel? One, is that still the case, which just seems like it is. And then two, it's what does Virtue Leap need to do from now and to reach that goal at a high level? You know, one of the things is what I mentioned with the three off conundrum of companies mm-hmm. using these inferior devices and experiences from my point of view. It's work finding we're at a stage where we're raising our seed round right now. You know? So so Amir, would you have to then educate those companies on the one difference and the importance of using six off versus three off? I hope not. I hope we just uh, approach some of these companies with such a clean slate that I don't have to even describe three off. You know, it's just like gotcha. six off is VR. Three off gotcha. is not. Gotcha. And you know, I was on a call yesterday with uh, um, an investor and he during the call he showed me this box of this headset that was it was like some no-name brand that was three off and it was so horrible to look at my you know because i drink the kool-aid like i told you you know and mm-hmm. i was like i was feeling nauseated that this headset wasn't before my eyes because that's not what i want people <laughs> to experience vr as and this person's going to give it to his kid and then the kid's gonna go vomit because of some bad experience yeah. that was designed with the wrong technology and six off is vr three off headsets it's 360 videos i want yeah. maybe we can just do that yeah that's fair but um back to your your question it's all about just going ahead with what we're doing having the leeway to develop it as we are we're a mix of scientists and game developers prioritizing the games based on science and and there's a lot to be done we're not a single product we're a library of games games that are being designed for the very first time in this manner in vr in 3d rendered environments where these games are designed to be closed loop games that you essentially you plateau at the difficulty level of your cognitive capacity and ability right and those are mm-hmm. really hard to create they're not they're very because they're we're creating scientific instruments in a way right you're playing a game yes but it's a scientific right. instrument at the end of the day and that's what uh, what we care about we don't ever want to mislead we never want to exaggerate we never want to prioritize anything other than the scientific integrity of these things and so there's a lot of iteration and we're really proud of what we're doing but there's a you know we call it VR development hell in the VR sector you know no one knows unless you're in the VR sec- uh, industry how challenging it is to create these types of games and then you're creating a library of them so what we need is I mean thankfully we're at the finish line of releasing our full version next month and by the end of the year we'll have probably enough games to move into a a freemium model and make enough revenues from these direct sales that we can thrive and and hire the critical talent that we need to grow the branches of our technology across all these different ways 
Yeah, that's fantastic. No, that's no, no. Fant- that's amazing. Sorry, go go ahead, Nico. Don't worry. we'll edit that bit. No, that's fantastic, Amir, and it sounds like you guys have a pretty straightforward plan moving forward. Yeah, I mean, like we're here in Lisbon, Portugal, and one of the things about this place, even though our parent company is Delaware, US based, our subsidiary here in Portugal is our headquarters, and it will be here for the foreseeable future because it is right here a very undertapped market of scientists and engineering talent and creative talent across the gaming and art sectors and so on. So we're just budding down here, buying our time. And really, I think the timing in the industry is really great. I know the the current pandemic and the crisis has been really shocking and disruptive in so many ways for everybody. But one of the only, I think, positive things that have happened is this acceleration of very, very important technology that is being pushed to the front and appreciated much, much more than it was if it was not for this unfortunate series of events. No, I'm I'm sorry. No, 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 that's completely... um warranted and yeah it's unfortunate kind of the circumstances but i'm glad you guys are still able to kind of operate interesting i was going to ask you actually about portugal so it makes sense kind of like the talent base there is undertapped which is really smart to be there i have a question really quickly as i interject because it's kind of come up a little bit making sure that people investors community perceives virtual leap as a neuroscience company not a gaming company although you do use games as a methodology to enhance brain activity um, mm. and, and try to cure a lot of stuff regarding the mind. How has that been trying to partner with health organizations? Um, I saw that you recently, or you joined Startup Health, which is an amazing accomplishment. Congrats. What was that process like with pitching them virtually and and being like, this is a neuroscience company? Yeah. I mean, like in 10 years, I think the overlap between what's educational and what's good for your health, like nutritionally good for you and, you know, mentally and cognitively speaking, I think they're starting to bleed away. and, And I think games have always been in my mind at least and what I read and study, I think games is gamifying things and making play into something that is educational. I think it's probably the most maximum expression of how humans best learn and grow. I think when you make school a game, that's probably, you know, my 13-year-old self's dream if that was possible instead of being seated and, you know, in rote didactically learning things. I think game is the way we're wired to learn and do and everything. I think to startup health credit, they're very aware of that already even before we ever got to their door. They recognize that gaming or serious games is the right category. It's very sharply defined as when you gamify the science with the sciences prioritized. You know, you never design any of these types of serious games uh, with the same objectives as a game studio in the traditional entertainment industry of escapism. Like, you know, how do I make it addictive? How do I maximize session length? That's not at all what the point of serious games are when you're doing something educational and you have objectives like designed in the structure and of the game itself. You know, it's like, it's implicit and explicit at the same time. And that's serious games. And I think in the US at least, which is our main market. To their credit, I I really don't seem to be hitting against any walls where it comes to that. People don't see it as trivial, thankfully. I think Europe is a little bit harder. They're a little bit behind and a little bit much more risk-averse than the U.S. is, and Canada is very much like the U.S. But I do think this is like the whole ocean is rising together. I think people, and you're going to see a lot of startups like Virtual Leap that are tagging along. The main priority is science, but the form and the disguise, perhaps, or the way you ingest that science so that educational healthcare experience is in a very fun way. And why not? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I love that answer. Thank you. Thank you. And so just to pivot on that. So I remember when I first heard um, you guys' company name, and it was VR. The first company came to mind was actually Magic Leap just due to the similarity <laughs> of the names. Right. So have you ever, have you had any issues or uh, situations where Virtual Leap has been mistaken for Magic Leap or people coming with that connotation? No, actually. We've had every other situation where people just can't spell the name correctly. They'll call it virtual leap or virtue and then next word leap. Or we, me and Hossein, we always just like are dumbfounded by how many ways um, our company name can be miswrote, um, even by like journalists, you know, but uh, mm-hmm. uh, magic leap. No, I would say I'm proud for that association. I think we created our domain before they did though, but um, mm-hmm. they certainly um, are a force of nature. We have a couple of magic leap ones even here. We're trying to take some of our games and make them into uh, AR versions, in fact, for the healthcare setting. But unfortunately, no, 
no, we haven't. I, I would say it's unfortunate because I do. I like that association. They're definitely good <laughs> friends to have. Yeah. And so like with the, um, with the unfortunate layoffs at Magic Leap earlier this year, like have you, I don't know, I've seen some reporters and some reports, which I don't think are fair, kind of like ripping on, escaping reports on like the VR, AR industry. Have you seen any fallout from that? Journalists are really scary people, man. Like um, <laughs> ah, it's amazing, you know, because I've been writing for about five years in the sector just as a contributor. And I watch how on the one hand, they serve as like this sensationalism arm of the big players. So they wanted to make VR all about entertainment and all about escapism. Even though five years ago, you would talk to the very serious people in the industry and they would tell you that the real serious use cases are educational and healthcare oriented even back then. I and mean, it took a long time for the big players to start moving, not just away from entertainment, because they'll never move away from entertainment, but mm-hmm. also give some attention to the non-entertainment enterprise use cases, right? And, and all the journalists would like 90% of what you see out, out there would be entertainment, entertainment, entertainment. And then when that market doesn't happen, it's like, oh my God, VR is crashing. And the same mm-hmm. journalists will just sensationalize and try to bully. I think bully is the right word. Big targets like Magic Leap. There's plenty of things you can point out in a person, needless to say, a big organization. If you want to dislike someone or dislike something, you can always find plenty of ways to do it. You won't be focusing on all the positive things they've done. You're almost blind to it by the forces of psychological projection. You just don't want to see that because your agenda is to harm them in some way and you look for all the evidence you can. Magic Leap is a huge organization, or at least it's still huge even after the massive layoffs. But you know, most of the people I know, in fact, I think all of them are no longer with the company. So the organization with, in, with respect to who I know there is it's not the same, but I think they're unfair. I think they're not objective. I think the media journalists, they're out to be arbiters. And you know, it's like movie critics, critics, you know, ultimately yeah. you need a degree to be a critic. Uh, it's a very interesting position to be in where you don't have all the the stake, everything at stake that the people at the helm of the industry do. And yes, I would be also on the side of the criticism. I think Magic Leap should have moved into enterprise use cases a year prior to their official announcement. Mm-hmm. But but previously they were consumer and enterprise, right? And then they shed the consumer arm with the most recent layoffs. I mean, they should have maybe, now I'm being a critic, but $2,500 a pop. That's not a consumer yeah. uh, ready product, it's not, right? not any consumer I know, yeah. <laughs> and so, you know, they sold like, I think, 6,000 units compared to many, many more that were projected in their forecast. And it should have been maybe obvious that that was the case. But the thing about AR is that they're, it's much more in many ways more premature than VR, where the form factor and the costing and the GPUs and all that stuff brought together into a comfortable headset. It's taken quite a lot of iteration for us to get to Oculus Quest and Pico Neo 2s, right? And, yeah. and and AR hasn't had that even close. The level of magnitude of iteration that we've been seeing from the hardware players, AR hasn't even seen close to that level of iteration. And I think we're probably about, I would even be bullish and say eight to 10 years away from the same level of sophisticated AR glasses as, as we have for VR now. Maybe that's mm. really conservative, but the last year flew so fast that I don't see eight to 10 years that being that long of a period of time anymore. Yeah, no. <laughs> yeah, I totally agree. By my um understanding of time has drastically changed as the years have come on, especially with 2020. Yeah. I don't know if the next 10 years are as long as this one year, though. I don't know. Wow. That's that's quite a while. I know. I know. It's insane. It's already pretty much feels like halfway a year. And what we're just hoping, I mean, no comment, please don't hurt the world. Yeah. You know, alien invasion. I mean, what else can you escalate to at this point? Right? Exactly. But no, I am super, I'm inherently, if anyone, if anyone who talks to me about this stuff, like I'm inherently bullish on AR VR. Yeah. I think there are a ton of amazing use cases. And I think people do criticize it quite a bit, unjustly so. And I love to hear about that specifically. But like, for example, like animation inherently, I think like Disney did like the first like where they had plates and they took pictures in like the 50s. Right. You know, and it's been 70 years and now we have amazing FX like graphics, like you have these big blockbuster films, but like VR, you know, has been tinkered with, I think from like the 70s and 80s, but like hasn't really been getting that like serious dedication until like might even say early 2000s. So I right. think it's very much still at the very beginning of its kind of life cycle. And I think it's already pretty amazing in and of itself. I think the, the biggest problem, and I'm probably going to hurt my my own tomorrow because of comments like this, but the venture capital world is just so short-term focused. When mm-hmm. it comes to deep tech startups, they don't, they treat them in the same way and evaluate them in the same way as companies that are selling hot dogs 
blogs on e-commerce sites. I mean, it's like we're developing yeah. like bleeding edge technologies here that are fantastic and they're not giving as much leeway. And so when in the 2010, 2011, 2012, when all these VCs started like teaming up together in Silicon Valley and spending so much money to fuel all these startups, assuming that only in a few years they would have like millions of users in VR. That was just so bad. The media sensationalized it and everything. And then by 2014, 2015, they all like started going opposite. They're like, oh, VR is a failure. And it's like, what? It's just been four years and, you know, in like three years, some startups in two years. And, and they just have the most bizarre short-term life cycles in mind. And they're projecting that onto a sector that just needs a different playbook to be expected of them. And if you do that, I mean, there's so many dead bodies around me of startups I used to know, you know, a few years ago. You have to mm -hmm. be a cockroach to be a VR startup that survived since 2016, like us, right? So a lot of people didn't survive. And it's because I think in most parts, the venture capital world is just so darn short-term focused and all about creating unicorns everywhere. And it's just, I think it, it does a disservice to what we can accomplish if we have a different lens in terms of expectations. Yeah, I mean, everyone wants, a, you know, a SaaS product, a, a PAS product. Everyone, you know, wants things that scale and they're easy to make that you can iterate on in less than a year. But you know, that's not every business. Right. And it's especially not VR. Right. I would love to hear, and I know we're at time and I want to be respectful of your time. So uh, we can wrap it up soon or we can wrap it up right now. How are you on time, Amir? I, I'm I'm in no rush. Okay, perfect. I would love, I think, so we've had Icona Health on in the past, which is a VR focused on like medicine, patient education, but I don't think we've really talked about like the VR industry as a whole or kind of like where it's at for a lot mm. of our users or a lot of our listeners. And I think a lot of them are people that are tangentially know of VR, AR space. So I guess if, if you were, if someone was new to the space, like what would you maybe two or three things that you would want them to take away or to know about the industry as a whole? Okay. So first off, uh, the article I mentioned, See Hero Quest, the last, the article on VentureBeat, um, it actually featured Icona and featured Tim Fitzpatrick and Todd mm. Maddox, you know, uh, yeah. I just want to do a huge shout out to those fellows. They're probably the best healthcare VR company out there just to give them a little bit of um, credit there. I'm a big fan of, of both of them and their company. But um, moving into my sentiment on the, on the industry, you have to always separate entertainment and the consumer side of the VR industry from the enterprise. You can never conflate the two. You can never consider them one industry. And a lot of the articles you're going to see out there with journalists who are actually quite glib and not that informed on the topic, they're just trying to push out an article that is clickbait or whatever, they'll often mm -hmm. put them together. And that's not what VR is. VR is two separate industries. One is about escapism and entertainment and really high octane Duke Nukem mm -hmm. VR experiences yeah. that makes you, you know, I don't know, have a transcendental psychedelic experience. That's great. Right there on the left. And then on the right, you got a much sobering, mature industry that has been working quite quietly in enterprise across sectors like automotive and airlines and manufacturing. Very, very interesting use cases where both AR and VR are used for training, for educational experiences, for HR, for sales even, for use cases that are sensitive and you wouldn't want to do them in person. But with VR, you can do, you can try to create experiences that offer empathy and create empathy in other people. There's a lot of these use cases that have been very quiet and they're not as dramatic in terms of being covered in sensationalized articles. And so I would love people when they look at articles and when they're researching VR, look at who is writing it and look at how they're portraying it. Is it the case that this is, you know, we had an article about a, maybe six to seven weeks ago or something that was like VR is dead article. You know, these ones always come mm. out. Some, I think it was, I don't want to misname the publication, but it came out and then we're like, what is this person talking about? I mean, he was using an Oculus Go for the first, for the first point, you know, which I have a very strong opinions of. And that's at three degrees of freedom. One right, class. right. And he was using that because he couldn't get his hands because of the supply shortage. He couldn't get his hands on the sixth off, right? So he's using this three off degree uh, headset and he's saying, oh my God, it's this. And he's saying, oh, the industry hasn't really met up to its potential because he's only talking about entertainment. He doesn't care about what's happening in healthcare. He doesn't care that BMW and Porsche and Boeing and all these big, massive Fortune 500 companies are using VR for many, many years and not as experimental tinkering, but they've graduated since 2018 at least. They've been graduating into full steam ahead implementation. You got Lockheed Martin with a whole VR center. You know, you got NASA and all these very important big 
big companies all around the world for high performance, high stress jobs, or whatever you key sectors that can use this for training in particular. Keep in mind that, that these two worlds are very separate. And sometimes when you want to research things, you have to talk to the experts themselves, you know, reach out to the people who are actually in the industry for several years, because being in VR is like doggy years, you know, one year equals mm. four. I mean, I don't want to, I think people who were in previous generations of VR that didn't really make it, you know, like in the, there's been at least three or four waves of VR. And this is the final wave, I think, in terms of the form factor and everything coming to play right. But this is the time to talk to people directly. I think you have to be very sparing in, in the articles you read. I think there are exceptions, of course. There's Lucas Matney at TechCrunch. He's amazing. You know, you have Dean and Jeremy Horowitz at AdventureBeat. These are, but there's very mm. few and far between who are really experts in VR. The rest are uh, sensationalism. So be careful what you read and be careful what you share and, and the assumptions. VR is a very sophisticated industry. It's not uh, one twig. You take it out and the whole thing falls down like a house of cards. It is very much mainstream, especially in the enterprise side of things. Gotcha. Gotcha. That's fantastic. I think that's um, really important to know for anyone that learning about or even hearing about it because, you know, like those articles, whether or not they are sensationalist, and I think a lot of them are, especially ones that are claiming that VR is dead. Um, it does affect public opinion. And I think that's really unfair. And yeah, just for, for those of you at home for like use cases, specifically in VR, where like you want, like are sensitive, like we do a lot of training stuff at Accenture, or we have a few use cases that we publish. And one of them, I got to experience was about social work mm. and what it's like to actually go like it was a like, actual case where like you were going to like a site to go make decisions on whether on like the health of a, a human being and like I was able to actually it was pretty emotional because like it lets you like it was like looking at a family and seeing like whether or not like it was like for child endangerment and it's like very much like shades of gray like you can give someone a manual but it's very different than when you're in person talking to people and trying to make a decision that is fundamentally life-changing for everyone involved. And so that's just one of the many, many use cases, I think, of VR. Absolutely. As empathy, empathy engine, um, you know, you have platforms like Kaleidoscope VR. They're like a, a platform for artists and filmmakers and VR and so on. And they have tons of examples of what you're talking about, where you have this intersection of training and empathy, all of it kind of, again, it's all about the body believes that experience is real. And when you put them in the shoes of someone or some place or in a particular circumstance, otherwise just an article that they're reading in terms of words and text, you know, it's described, I think, very effectively as it's, it's becoming the medium is becoming story living now and so mm -hmm. you encode those memories almost like it's the real thing it's not so much mm -hmm. it's not a storybook anymore it's it's you projecting into that experience yeah your experience becomes the story absolutely and we talk about it all the time right the most impactful things are stories right. right the power of one and if you think a story is great like imagine if your every sense is involved with that story rather than just your sight and your hearing absolutely Absolutely, yeah. man. It's chilling. I'm super excited. So moving forward, just the wrap up, where can, if someone wanted to learn more about VR in general, the industry, the space, what resources would you recommend? Books, websites, things like that. Yeah, I would follow Lucas Matney articles on TechCrunch. I would follow Super Data Research. They're a great uh, research agency based in, I believe, New York, uh, but probably they're global. They have a really great POS way of uh, looking at uh, unit sales and market penetration. They're very, very good um, in terms of that, you know, direct data. Mm -hmm. But, you know, aside from that, I would just, you know, I, I don't know a, a central place to really look for it. You have VR sites like Upload and Road to VR and so on. And these are good ways to keep up to date with the latest. Uh, VentureBeat is really, really great as well. But I would try to, if you are someone who's interested in this sector, try to figure out what sector in particular, what niche area you're interested in and look for those people on, for example, LinkedIn. And I can promise you, as far as my uh, experience is, the VR community is very small and it's very full of people who know each other and love to share directly firsthand their experience and their tips on the industry. So try to talk and be social with people and connect with them and just pick their brains. I, I promise you that they will uh, oblige. That's fantastic. And thank you so much. I can't, I'm sure a lot of people will find this super useful. And for a final question is where can people go to learn about the amazing work that you guys are doing at Virtually? <laughs> so I guess just our, our website would be perfect. It's at virtually.com, V-I-R-T-U-L-E-A-P.com. You can reach out to me on LinkedIn. I'm pretty friendly and I'm happy to connect and even share my insights about the industry. Yep. Thank you, Amir. Fantastic. Thank you so much, Amir. We really appreciate you being on the show today. Thank you too. 
Thank you so much for taking the time to listen to our podcast today. Your attention means the world to us. If you enjoyed today's episode, please feel free to share this episode with a friend. And if you really enjoyed it, if you could go ahead and leave a rating and a review on whatever platform you get your podcasts, Iman and I would be over the moon. Stay tuned for our next episode.